Let's talk oral surgery. This is Marcus Huang, and we are at episode five. It doesn't seem like much, but I didn't think I would even get to episode one or two. I needed a lot of encouragement from a select group of friends to get this going. Today we are talking about debt, specifically student debt. I came across a blog post that was titled "Oral Surgeon Salary: Is This Career Path Worth the Student Debt?" And I know this isn't a topic that many of you want to talk about or listen to me talk about, but it is very important. I think, especially with the COVID pandemic this year and last year, I think there was a lot of confusion among new grads or even dental students about the interest rates and whether to pay student debt or the grace periods and so on. And so I wanted to get to the bottom of it. I will link the article in the show notes because it is a very interesting article. It talks about the amount of debt it takes to become an oral surgeon, the amount of years it takes for an oral surgeon to catch up to their other dental colleagues, and the income and the cumulative earnings over decades. And so today's guest, his name is Rob Bertman. He is a senior consultant to a company called the Student Loan Planner. And the student loan planner, to my understanding, consults on student debt, especially of those that reach that six-figure number. And I think that includes everyone listening on the show. I think anyone in healthcare professions have had their debts reach that six-figure number. Rob talks a bit about what to do with your student loans as you match into your residency and as you progress into first, second year, and so on. And this gets a little bit complicated if you enter a six-year program where you take a little break from being a resident and play the status of a medical student. And so I found this very informative for me because I am in a six-year program, and I also hope that it helps some of you. He talks about different repayment options such as payee and repayee, and I always get those confused. And so I think it was very nice to have Rob clarify that for me. We even get into the topic of public service loan forgiveness. PSLF, and I was surprised about what I learned from Rob and the confusion I originally had about it. And so, if you are interested in that topic, we will be covering that today. Now, I bring you Rob Burton. All views expressed on the show and the following episodes belong to the host or the guest and do not represent the opinions of any entity. Hey, Rob Bertman. Welcome to the show. Hey, thanks, Marcus. Thanks for having me. You know, I was very surprised when I read your blog on Student Loan Planner, and I just cold emailed you and said, "Hey, I want to do this episode." And and frankly, I was very surprised that you responded and that you were very open to doing the show. Yeah, we just we love helping people. There's you know, there's a lot of people with six figure student debt out there. I think there's over three million people in that situation. Obviously, OMSs are definitely part of that, and we want to help as many people as possible. Yeah, you know, and I think a lot of oral surgeons, or I mean, dental students, and I guess I'm talking about myself. I don't know too much about student debt management. I know personal finance, but getting to details about loan repayment has been on my mind, and I've been pushing it off like a bad student for years <laughs> now. And I'm in my medical school portion of residency, and so I thought this would be a good time to, you know, get the ball rolling on、uh, paying back loans. Well, for sure. I mean, you've been busy with school, right? I mean, it's not like you're learning anything all that complex or、uh, that requires a lot of training. You know, why would you focus on the student debt? I'm, I'm kidding, of course, but <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, but obviously, yeah. There's the balance too, because it's a,、uh, it's you know, six figures of student debt is something that needs to be taken seriously. But when you're in the middle of school. You're focused on the curriculum. You're focused on your training, and it makes perfect sense that you haven't really looked at it quite yet. We're lucky here. So the residency here at Oregon, we're lucky in that our medical school is actually paid for through doctor named Dr. Van Ziles. He、uh, retired and he left a huge endowment to the school to then pay for oral surgery, oral surgery residents'、uh, medical school tuition, but. Wow. I know that is a very rare thing in the oral surgery field, especially in the six-year programs. I know there are a couple, but now I wanted to start off this、uh, 
podcast kind of talking about what the student loan planner do and uh, what is the mission of your group? Yeah, the mission of Student Loan Planner, it's a, a business that was started back in uh, either, it was either late 2015 or in 2016 by Travis Hornsby. And the goal was, the goal is, and the mission is to help six-figure borrowers figure out the most optimal path to pay back their student loans so they can save as much money as possible. And my sort of little spin on that is that we want graduate level professionals across the board to feel like they don't have to have their student loans dictate their career path and their life path. We want them to pick their career path and life path and design the student loan plan around them. Student loan rules are very, very flexible in the federal program. And so there is that opportunity, no matter what career path someone chooses to do, that there is an optimal student loan plan there for them. So that's our mission. Yeah, I think in a previous episode, I talked to a surgeon about how if you really want to live your dream through OMS, specifically the scope of surgery that you want to do, whether you want to do a fellowship or have a hybrid model where you're doing private practice plus oral surgery in the OR, the most important thing is to keep debt low. And I've been trying. And so I'm I'm really glad that you're on the show. I'm sure many of my listeners will have questions. And if you have questions, listeners, you know, contact Rob uh, and I'll leave his his email and contact information in the uh, show description. But yeah, so to start, you know, why do you think oral surgery residents need to know about student loan management? And how does it differ from other dental residency program residents? Right. Well, dentist school, dentistry school is one of the most expensive graduate level schools out there. It's more expensive than traditional medical school, than, you know, veterinary school, than chiropractic school. Basically, any type of graduate level education, dentists are near the top in terms of how much student debt they have to take out because of the cost of the education. And then when you layer on top of that, specialties like orthodontics or periodontics or endodontics or oral surgery, that really, really ups the cost for that, for, for that degree. So the top, in fact, the student loan planner, we've done plenty of seven-figure student debt cases, and they've pretty much all been dentists or dentist couples or dental specialist couples. So the cost of school is really expensive combined with the amount of time that it completes, it it takes to complete the degree, especially for oral surgery. That's why managing student debt and understanding the best ways to approach it are really, really important. Yeah. You know, one thing that uh, other residencies also, other specialty programs uh, that they face is that they don't get paid as a resident, especially most of them don't. And so oral surgery is one of the unique ones where we do get paid during our residency, which is really nice. And it does help with loan repayment. And, you know, Rob, this is kind of why I really want to talk to you, whether, you know, oral surgeons should use, residents should use, you know, their stipends to pay back loans or to use for other investing opportunities. And so let's start from match day. So Mm -hmm. dental students interview uh, during their fourth year and come match day in January, what should they do with their student loans as they graduate? Right. So until graduating, there's really nothing that can be done other than, you know, monitoring your, I mean, the tuition cost and everything like that is sort of a given, but cost of living and everything like that is kind of flexible up until the time you graduate. Once graduation happens, there's a lot that can be done. And the sooner that an oral surgeon starts on the path of getting on the right repayment strategy, the better. So for example, there's this window typically after graduation, but before starting residency where there's no income, right? You're just kind of out of school, maybe living off of the scraps of what's left over from the student loans until you get paid, you know, the, the resident salary, which is a fraction of what you'll be making as an oral surgeon when you, when you reach that, you know, as an attending. So one of the things that we recommend doing is um, normally when someone graduates, there's the six month grace period. So that, that grace period is the time where they basically give you some lenience on paying back your student loans. They say, we know you've graduated, but you probably need six months to build up some cash and to get your financial foundation started before you start repayment. So, but because when people graduate, they're usually not making any money, it's the best time to really start repayment. So there is a way to waive the grace period. So in other words, rather than waiting towards six months, sometimes we recommend is to consolidate all of your loans in order to waive the grace period so that you can start your repayment right away. 
And what that does is because student loans operate so much differently than any other type of debt, you know, with credit card debt, auto loans, the goal is pay it back as quickly as possible. But with student debt, you can approach it not only based upon how much you owe, but there's these uh, plans called income driven repayment. And the payments are based upon your income, not how much you owe. So whether someone owes 500,000 of debt or 100,000 of debt, the payments would be based upon their income. So all that to say, after graduating, your income is zero. So you can literally have zero payments for an entire year if you waive the grace period and start your repayment right away. So you're starting your repayment, but with zero payments for 12 months. And why would one do that? So the reason to do that is because, so student loans are going to be accruing interest during that grace period. Hmm. So, so even though there's no payments, the interest is growing on the, uh, on the, um, on some of the loans, sometimes all, but sometimes some of them. And what happens is if someone, if income driven repayment, well, right. So maybe I'll back up and talk about how income driven repayment works. Yeah. So income driven repayment works. There are a number of plans. The payments are based upon your income and you pay for either 20 or 25 years and you pay either 10 or 15% of your income, depending on which plan you choose. And the, because the payments are based upon your income, an oral surgeon might not cover the interest. They might not pay off all the loans over that period of time. Whatever's left over after the 20 or 25 years of payments gets forgiven. And under the current student loan rules, that forgiven balance, you pay taxes on that forgiven balance. So this is kind of counterintuitive, but sometimes if people owe more in student debt that they're going to be making uh, as an oral surgeon, once they're done with residency and their training, then it might actually pay to start the clock with zero payments on an income-driven plan, pay as little as possible on the loans and have as much forgiven as possible. So that's kind of the math. When we're dealing with student debt, we want to take one of two broad approaches. One is super aggressive, pay off the debt as quickly as possible. And that's mainly for people who owe less than they make or people who are um, not eligible for any type of loan forgiveness programs. But, but the opposite approach is pay as little as possible over the 20 or 25 years and have as much forgiven. And that way you can save and invest for your other financial goals along the way. So how does that compare to, what is the other alternative to an income-based repayment? Right. So there's, there's, two, there's two ways to do it. One is you pay based upon how much you owe. And those plans are called you know, the standard plan, the extended plan, the graduated plan. And all those payments are based upon the debt amount. So um, someone who owes $500,000 of debt is going to have different payments than someone owes who owes $100,000 of debt on those plans. Strictly, it's kind of like the traditional way to pay back debt. Mm-hmm. Now there's income-driven repayment plans like pay-as-you-earn, revised pay-as-you-earn, another one's called income-based repayment, IBR. And those, it doesn't matter how much you owe, it matters how much you make, and the payments are based upon that. Do you want to talk a little bit about the difference between the payee and the repayee? Sure. Yeah, so, and this is another thing for residents. And and if if, for example, an oral surgeon knows that they're going to go into private practice and they're going to make you know, 400,000 plus or something like that in income, and they have around $400,000 of student debt, then the distinction between pay and repay matters versus someone who might be, you know, an oral surgeon who might be working in the OR after residency Mm -hmm. and might qualify for public service loan forgiveness. So, okay, let's start with pay. So pay, the payments are based upon 10% of your, what's called discretionary income. So they take your income after like pre-tax retirement plan contributions, then they subtract out one and a half times the federal poverty level. It's not all that complicated of an equation, but just think about how much you're taking, how much your income is, multiply that by 10%, and that's about what your payments are going to be. So what happens is the payments are that way for there. So for example, if, if, if an oral surgeon graduates and starts their residency and, and they, their prior year tax return is what you use to certify the payments. So typically med student isn't working because you're busy working, you know, studying crazy hours, right? <laughs> yeah. Being a, being a medical student. Yeah. Yeah. No time for a job. Uh, the, the school is the job. So if you, if someone uses their prior year tax return, their income is going to show zero and 10% of zero is zero. Mm-hmm. So their payments will be zero for that first 12 months. And, and that first year of zero payments counts towards that 20 or 25 years of repayment. So pay as you earn is 10% of income for 20 years. And at the end of those 20 years, 
whatever loans are remaining get forgiven. You know, the government wipes it away. Then they send a tax form in year 20 saying, you know, saying um, you owe, you have to add that, you have to add that forgiven debt to your income for on your tax return for that year. So, and pay as you earn also, they, so pay as you earn also allows people who are married to file their taxes separately to exclude their spouse's income from the payment calculation. And also pay as you earn also provides a payment cap. So there's the 10 year standard plan, which is the plan with which, you know, if you made this level payment, think of it like a 10 year mortgage. If you made that payment for 10 straight years, you'd pay off the debt in full with interest. Mm -hmm. So on pay as you earn, the payment, no matter how big your income gets compared to your debt, will never exceed that 10 year payment cap. So, so pay as you earn is for people who are like pretty certain that they're going to go long term. Maybe they're going to go for PSLF, work in a hospital, and they'll get their years of credit toward public service loan forgiveness during residency. And then they're going to work at a hospital and be eligible for that program. So that's pay as you earn. Repay, revised pay as you earn, is the same payment. It's also 10% of income like pay. But think repay is a longer name versus pay. So repay, longer name, longer term. So rather than 20 years, the payment term is 25 years. So an oral surgeon would pay for five years longer on that plan. It doesn't give the ability to file taxes separately to exclude spouse's income. So whatever, think about whatever spousal income would be, you multiply that by 10%. That's how much is going to be added to the payment versus if they were on pay. So you might be thinking, well, hey, if it's five years longer and I can't, I don't have these other benefits, why would anyone choose this plan over pay? And the reason is because repay offers an interest subsidy. So for example, let's just say that um, an oral surgeon graduates and they start repayment and they owe, let's call it $500,000 of student debt. Might be six, let's, well, maybe 600,000 just to go on the higher end. If their interest rate on their loans is 6%, that means that their interest on the loan alone is gonna be $36,000 a year, 6% times 600,000. So in order to keep up with that, that's $3,000 a month of interest that's gonna accrue on the loan. Mm-hmm. With repay, it has an interest subsidy so that any interest that isn't covered by the payments, half of that gets wiped away. So for example, $36,000 of interest, if the payments are zero, then there's no payment covering any interest. So the government will actually wipe away half the interest. So the interest will drop from $36,000 a year to $18,000 a year. So let's put, let's put it this way. If an oral surgeon is in residency and they have that much debt at that interest rate, chances are that they could save over the course of their residency, they could save $100,000 of interest accruing on their loan by being on repay. And now I'm going to do the flip question of why would anyone pick payee over repay? I know the payee seems to have benefits if you're married and you can mm-hmm. keep the, you know, the, the costs lower. But you know, thinking about long-term and also just compound interest, for me, it, makes, it seems to make more sense to just pick repayee so I can kind of save on the interest part. No, it's a, it's a good point. So a couple of things about student debt. There's something else that's different about student debt than any other kind of debt. Along, So one thing is payments based upon income rather than the debt amount. The other thing is that student loan interest actually is not compound interest. It, it accrues. So the principal balance on the loan, let's just call it you know 600000 again. If $36,000 of interest accrues on the loan with pay, the loan that now you have a principal balance of 600,000 and the accrued interest of 36,000. This, the interest rate is only applied to the principal balance. It's mm-hmm. not applied. So the, the debt grows in more of like a straight line rather than that exponential growth curve. Um, Thanks for clarifying that. I was actually confused. No, most people don't, most people don't know that. I mean, and even people who deal with student loans all the time, a lot of fi- financial advisors and financial planners don't understand that either. So it's one of those weird things, you know, Student loan, student loans are an epidemic for sure, um, but you know there are some saving graces to it, I guess. So why would someone choose pay? So someone might choose pay because if you think about the arc of of an oral surgeon's income, chances are they're going to be making the most money in years twenty to twenty five of their career versus in residency. So what you're doing is you're trading interest subsidy on you're trading maybe having a higher loan balance forgiven sooner for the ability to not have to make five extra years of payments when you're at your peak earning as an oral surgeon, because the payments will be based upon your income. So to my understanding, yeah. So when you are, 
an oral surgeon at your prime making the most amount of money, the payee still applies to you at that point, given that you'll probably be under the payee option still. And so you'll be paying larger monthly payments compared to when you were making less. Yeah. I mean, and, and in terms of the numbers, like if we take a, a case of an oral surgeon who has four years of residency and when they exit residency, they start making about $400,000 a year and their income grows, you know, at a, at a you know, with inflation, um, those extra five years of payments end up being basically an extra $250,000 of payments in those final five years on repay compared to pay. So, you know, those extra five years are very, very costly because of it, the income is so high. You know, I want to talk a little bit about just because you just mentioned uh, like a four-year residency. So there are two types of residencies, as you know, uh, there are four-year programs and a six-year program. And a six-year program has a medical degree, sorry, a medical portion that is that can either be in the beginning or somewhere in the middle. And so let's focus a bit on the medical students uh, or, or the six-year programs, because I think that's a little bit more complicated. At our program, we start as medical students. And so I'm not making money. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I'm still paying for my living expenses through financial aid. Like I mentioned, the school pays for my tuition. But now, if a medical student was paying for tuition during um, that time, should you just treat it like an extended dental school where you're just accruing more debt and you should do the six months grace period a little bit later on? Well, if, if you're in school, I guess your loans are technically an in-school deferment at that point too, right? Mm -hmm. So you can't make payments on them, even though they're in, if you're in school, you can't technically make payments. So you could continue right. to take out student loans, but once graduating and starting residency, that's when the payments would, would turn on. Does that answer your question or? Yeah, it does. And now that leads to my next question about how some programs uh, start with intern year and an intern year, you're from the institution's point of view, you are a resident and you're getting paid. So you're an employee getting paid from the school. And so you're making money. And so from FAFSA, you're not a student. Mm -hmm. But then come year two, you are now done with intern year and you go back to medical school. What do you do then? Right. So I would think that maybe a good strategy would be in that situation is to consolidate the, the dental school loans and waive the grace period and start on repay to get that interest subsidy for that year. Now, if you certify using your income from prior year tax return, so even though some, even though you know, you're in school, like it makes sense to file a tax return, even if your income is zero. So once, once you start your payments on repay, it's gonna slow down the interest growth. It's basically gonna cut the interest rate in half, essentially, because you're gonna have zero payments, you'll get half the interest wiped away. But then, you know, then when you go back to medical school, the loans go into in-school deferment. Then when you exit medical school, the loans will start your repayment right away. But if you have zero payments for another year, so you could literally get two years of zero payments, possibly with an interest subsidy over that period of time to do that. So like one year on the internship year, and then another year of zero payments after graduating medical school. But during the medical school, you're not paying any debt. Sorry, you're not paying, making any payments. Right, right. Because typically when, when people enter school, studentaid.gov gets wind of that and then they freeze the payments. They put you in in-school deferment. With payee, let's say I go the payee option and I'm in my intern year and I am making payments, mm -hmm. but because of my prior tax returns, I am making zero payments during that year. Mm -hmm. And now I'm into med school year one, year two. So does that, those, do those three years count towards my 20 years of payee or does that does the two years of medical school get canceled out? Yeah. So if you're an in-school deferment, those years won't count towards the 20 years, but the internship year would count. And, and again, just to kind of the um, having zero payments is aside from the interest subsidy, like if someone chooses pay for their long-term strategy, the reason that's good. Okay. So let's just say that some people get worried about when the loans are forgiven, having to owe all this money in one lump sum. So we call it a tax bomb. So, you know, you kind of make your payments and at the end, loans are forgiven, you have this giant tax bomb, it could be a few hundred thousand dollars, and that scares people. But um, a couple of things that will make people feel better is that, again, student loan interest, it, it accrues, it does not compound. So it's not gonna grow exponentially at whatever your interest rate is. The other thing is, because it, it, the loans still get forgiven. Now, let's just say that someone is in like a 40% tax bracket when the loans are forgiven. 
for example, which, uh, which most, most oral surgeons I think will be in that 40%. Right. Exactly. And especially at the marginal rate. Right. So yeah. now, so what someone would do is they're actually paying, they're getting a dollar forgiven and then they'll owe 40 cents in taxes mm. in one lump sum. So, and because interest accrues, it doesn't compound. So like that interest bucket stays stagnant. It doesn't grow. It just kind of sits there and the print and the interest gets keep charged to the principal balance. And then the, whatever's left over, not covered by the payments drops into the accrual bucket, which is like a 0% interest part of the loan. So throwing any type of extra money at the debt is like throwing a dollar today at a 40 cent problem that you have 20 years to save up for. So people are much better off throwing as little as possible toward the loans and instead saving aggressively, investing aggressively on the side, getting the compound growth on their investments while getting straight line interest accrual growth on their student loans, and then only paying 40 cents on the dollar if they're in a 40% tax bracket instead of a dollar. So like put another way, let's just say that someone pays for 20 years or 19 years on pay and their loan balance grows to like 800,000. And let's just say the next day they're gonna get forgiven. So is it better to throw, if, uh, if an oral surgeon has this $800,000 at the debt, or is it better to let it get forgiven and just pay 320,000, 40% of that in taxes, and keep the other 480 in the in your pocket. When you when we put it that close, it's kind of a no-brainer. But if people make extra payments along the way, it, it kind of loses that context. Rob, I think you see my face kind of like getting confused. I don't know how you're able to do these calculations so quickly <laughs> as we talk. Like, I mean, I'm not editing any of these portions. And I, I, so Rob is just looking at me in the camera and he's just talking, talking, talking and able to do these comparisons. That's really impressive. And have you worked with a lot of oral surgery residents before? Yeah, yeah. Well, let me just say too, Marcus, I certainly couldn't do what you do. There's no way, no chance that I could do anything close to what you do. So this is what I do every day, all day, and you do what you do every day, all day. So that's why, you know, that's why I'm doing this instead of oral surgery. <laughs> what I'm doing right now is I'm skipping med school to uh, do podcast things and I'm slacking off on my research projects. Uh, <laughs> I'm a bad example for my listeners. No, but you're trying to help people. You know, that's, <laughs> that's great. But to answer your question, yes, we, we have had um, oral surgeons, pl plenty of oral surgeon clients and the average oral surgeon that we work with, this one, this number I'll have to look up. The, um, the average oral surgeon client that we talk to has uh, over $580,000 of student debt when we talk to them. So, you know, that is near the top of the list of what we see. I think orthodontists are the top of the list. They're like ranked number one. Mm -hmm. So dent dentists and dental specialists, you know, they graduate with that. So we, so we work, you know, if you add up dentist, orthodontist, endodontist, periodontist, oral surgeons, I mean, we've done over 500 consults just for dentists and dental specialists alone. You know, I'm looking at the table on your blog and, you know, on the payee option, a general dentist will assume to pay about $600,000 at the end of it. And the OMS, it looks like 822. Can you explain to the listeners what those numbers uh, actually mean? Oh, out of pocket. Right. So what that means is if we, what we do is we take the total payments paid projected to be paid over the 20 or 25 years. So like the 20 years on pay. And then at the end of the 20 years, there's that lump sum tax bomb payment. So in the example you're looking at on the website, so if we take you know a normal oral surgeon and we take their income on pay, the projected payments are $447,000 over a 20-year period. And then the loans grow over, nine, over 900,000. And then the tax bomb due in 20 years is 375,000. So if you take the 447 over 20 years plus the 375 due in 20 years, that adds up to 822,000 of payments. But the, the tricky thing with math is that, you know, a dollar in 20 years from now doesn't count as much as a dollar does today. Kind of like the whole carton of milk, you know, costs mm -hmm. different, you know, price of stamps goes up, all that stuff. So, you know, not to say that $300,000 is anything to sneeze at because it's not, but $300,000 in 20 years is going to be more like, you know, like uh, under $200,000 today. So mm. it makes, and plus you have the time to save and invest. So deferring that big lump sum actually makes the ability to build your net worth in the short run better than if you were to take like a 10 year standard approach to paying back the debt. Wow. Looking at this 822,000 is making me uh, have one of those, uh, we in the, in the 
surgery world, we call it the sphincter tightening moments. Um, <laughs> <laughs> looking at this number is making me a little uh, cringe a little bit. Well, but, um, but if you think about, and, and, and you're certainly not alone there, you're certainly not alone. The way to think about it though, is that think of student loans like a tax. Okay, so you have your federal tax, you have your state tax, some places have a local tax. And because the payments are based upon your income, so your student loan payments on pay or repay, it's like, a, it's like a tax on your income, but it's in the form of student loan payments. Mm -hmm. but, but because you've gotten the education and the training you've gotten, it's a, it will allow you the ability to make well, well, well above the average college graduate. Mm -hmm. And so you're basically paying a tax in order to do that. And so, yes, $800,000 is a lot, but without owing that $800,000, you probably wouldn't make an extra, gosh, I don't know, an extra four to $6 million over your lifetime in earnings because mm -hmm. of it. So if you put it in like the longer context, yes, it's a lot of money, especially when you have very little saved up like most medical residents or medical students or you know oral surgery students would have compared to the debt that is amassing. But at some point that's gonna flip and you're gonna have a lot more in savings and investment. You're gonna have like this monster net worth and the debt, it'll look like a big amount, but it's not gonna carry the weight that it feels like right now. Another thing that surprised me reading your blog post is how you compared a dentist to an oral surgeon in terms of uh, earnings over time. And it said this figure, the figure that you quoted on the blog said it takes 13 years after dental school for an oral surgeon to recoup the lost income compared to a general dentist. That really surprised me. How did, how, how was it surprising to you? Well, it just made it, it put into perspective on how many years I'm going without, you know, income and without, I guess, full potential income and I guess compound interest and so on. I, I, it made me ask the question of, or I guess this will make a lot of listeners ask themselves, like, if you're in it for the money, is it actually worth it? And, and this is kind of an old adage that everyone says, you know, don't do it for the money, do what you love. Um, and this kind of rings true to me that, you know, the money, seeing the 13 years is, is shocking, but it doesn't make me regret going into oral surgery. I mean, bottom line is it, with good financial habits, you're going to be totally fine financially, even with having you know, six figure student debt. And, you know, when you're look, oral surgeons, you, you know, about paying your dues, right? You go to school, you work your tail off to get good grades to qualify for good dentist school, dental school. Then you get into dental school and you got to keep working hard. Then you got to qualify for oral surgery. Then you got to go to medical school and residency. It's a long road, right? Mm -hmm. So waiting another 13 years until that thing flips, well, you still have hopefully, you know, a nice long career after that. And if you love what you do, more than general dentistry, if, if that if specialty means more to you, then that's great. You know, we always tell people if they're just figuring this out, like figuring out what to do with their life or whether to specialize, like, hey, what do you want to do? As a dentist, you're going to graduate with, you know, multiple six figures of student debt. So you might as well pick a path that you love. And dentistry is an oral surgery. I mean, these are all very stable professions, even in the pandemic where dental offices had to shut down for two months, people still, people still need oral surgery. People still need prosthetics and, and everything like that. So bottom line is if you love what you do and it's a specialty that really, really interests you, then at some point there'll be a payoff. It is pushed down the road compared to a general dentist, but hey, if you love it and you're excited for it, you're going to be fine. As a student, I always think about the debt that I have and it's it's scary to imagine how much I'm going to pay over my lifetime, but it's because I don't have exposure to getting that paycheck, seeing how much I actually make per month. Now, I, I think some of my listeners might be interested in knowing about how does this affect those who are trying to go into fellowship? Um, so after residency, uh, oral surgery residents have an opportunity to go into fellowships if they're interested. So to, specialize, to further specialize after this long journey into something else. Do you have other recommendations for those types of people? I guess I would just say that if someone wants to go to a fellowship because of the flexibility of income-driven repayment and being able to pay based upon income, that it's really, if you, if you want to do it, then go for it. Because the payments, I don't want to say only, but on a, you know, well, how, how much do fellowship, how much do um, oral surgeons get paid in fellowship compared to residency? Do you know those numbers? <laughs> it's pretty similar to a, a seventh year uh, of residency. Okay. So like around 70,000 ish or something like 60, 70. I would say more like 60. Okay. <laughs> so, so the monthly payments are going to be maybe like 
400-ish dollars a month on pay. So it, it, will, it will be affordable to do, to do that option. I mean, I don't want to say, you know, making 60,000 after all the training and as qualified as someone is, you know, $400 is still a lot of money, but at making that income, but it makes, it would make sense to continue on that path of paying. I guess the longer that the training goes, the more it makes sense to kind of stick with income-driven repayment in most cases. And if between residency and fellowship, that provides an opportunity to get four to six years of credit toward public service loan forgiveness, you need 10 years. And so if there's the opportunity to work in a hospital for four years, well, then the way that PSLF works is you make payments on pay for 10 years instead of the 20 years. And then, but after 10 years, whatever loans are remaining get forgiven tax-free. So literally the PSLF, an oral surgeon could pay a fraction of what they owe and get loans forgiven. So, you know, again, not that we want people to choose their, there's a student loan plan that will fit around an oral surgeon's career path that they want to take. But the more credit that someone has toward public service loan forgiveness, the more it might make sense to do those extra four years or five years to finish that out and then go into private practice. No, that's a really good segue to, um, I was trying to email my uh, school about this, whether, so I was interested in the public service, public service loan forgiveness, right? So mm-hmm, PSLF. Right. Correct. Yeah, you got it. PSLF. So I was trying to ask, because OHSU, to my knowledge, is a nonprofit hospital. And so during my residency years, I'll be working and employed through the hospital. And so I want to ask my school whether those four years count towards PSLF. Uh, do you know anything about that? They should. I mean, most hospitals are, are nonprofits. If, if there's a way to donate to the hospital or if it's affiliated with the university, then typically they're going to be nonprofit hospitals. And, and the easiest thing to do is to talk to, you know, maybe like, a, like the chief resident or um, someone in HR and say, have you signed this? It's called the employment certification form, ECF. And that employment certification form just, you know, you you say, well, there are three boxes to check to get PSLF credit. One is you have to have direct federal student loans and anyone who consolidates. So direct, anyone who has taken out loans after 2010 will have direct federal student loans. If anyone took out any loans for undergrad before 2010, there's an 80% chance that those are not direct student loans. But any case, that's, well, I could go in, into all sorts of things, but that's part of the reason why there's that 1% acceptance rate for PSLF on the first go round is because a lot of people don't have the right kind of loans. But anyway, one checkbox is direct federal student loans. Checkbox number two is working uh, or being on an income-driven repayment plan like pay or repay. And checkbox number three is working full-time at a nonprofit or government employer. So a university hospital would be an example of that. If you check each of those three boxes, then you have to have 120 cumulative months, not consecutive. It doesn't have to be in a row. So if you do that internship year for one year, then you go back to medical school and then you go to residency that one year will count towards the 10 years. So um, anyway, once you get to 10 years, 120 months of payments, qualifying payments, you then apply for public service loan forgiveness. And then when they accept your application, we've seen these letters from people, we've, we've seen that their loans get wiped away, that the loans are forgiven tax-free. So, so chances are, if you're working for a hospital that it is, especially in residency, you know, normally those are academic hospitals. So those payments should qualify for PSLF. You know, I wonder, I mean, this is probably a very complex question, but I wonder if that is affected at all, if a portion of your training, because I know at certain, certain programs, you leave that hospital system to go to another hospital system or to an outpatient uh, private practice setting for a couple months or whatever. I wonder if that affects the 120-month quota that you need to meet. I think as long as you're technically employed by the hospital and the, and the hospital is placing you, it's mm. basically who's ever paying you. Mm. So if the hospital is paying you, then that would count. No, I was going to say, like, for example, we have Washington University here, not University of Washington, but Washington University here in St. Louis. And there's a giant hospital system that's affiliated with that. And so, you know, anyone who ha- is in residency there, those, those payments qualify, whether they're doing oral surgery or just MD program, MD residency. That's really interesting. I'm, I'm glad you cleared that out for me. I, I was very curious. To put it simply, you think that it's recommended for oral surgeons to pay as little as you can during residency, which then translates to paying you know, less compared to a 10-year plan down the road as well, to then use that money for other avenues of income, such as investing, maybe buying a house or what have you. 
Um, have you seen oral surgery residents uh, pick the tenure option um, and it's worked out fine for them? I, I mean, it's, it's kind of impossible just because with the amount of debt and let's just say, you know, with $500,000 of debt, for example, you know, the 10 year payment is going to be around $5,000 a month and on a resident salary, that's more than what's being brought home. Mm. So that's why, you know, for, for there's a strategy that can be used. We call it, if someone knows they're going to go into private practice, there's the repay then refi strategy. So repay for the interest subsidy. And then once they become an attending or entering their, their kind of like full pay scale, then at that point they can refinance. The loan balance is going to grow, but it's going to grow at a slower pace and there'll be less to pay back once the refinancing happens. So we don't see very many residents and nor do we recommend residents kind of go that path. Mm-hmm. Even refinancing to like a 20 year payment schedule, it's still going to be pretty unaffordable for residents with, with oral surgery debt, dental school debt. So do you think in terms of refinancing, it's better to do that after you graduate? Yeah, I would say, so refinancing should only be for oral surgeons who they are, once they're making more than what they owe in student debt, and if they don't have any prospects for public service loan forgiveness. Mm. So because in the federal program, there's a lot of flexibility. You have forbearance, you know, a lot of, a lot of residents actually make the mistake of putting their loans in forbearance instead of making payments along the way. Can you clarify what uh, forbearance is? Yeah, forbearance is basically you tell the federal government, I can't pay, I'm not going to pay. So they they will, There's you have 36 months of that. And so 36 months of zero payments, but the loans are going to grow and grow and grow. And once you exit forbearance, the interest that was accruing on the loan in that separate zero interest bucket capitalizes into the principal, meaning that accrued interest becomes now part of the new principal balance of the loan. And so rather than having low affordable payments with an interest subsidy, it's going to make loan, number one, they'll get those four years of payment credit toward the 20 years if they're going to do that. And even if they are going to pay off the loans in full, the loan is going to grow at a much, much slower pace on repay than it would um, if they went into forbearance. So that's why it's important for residents and interns and fellows to really be on an income-driven repayment plan so that they can start accruing credit towards those 20 or 25 years, but then also make sure that the loan growth if they're on repay is slowed compared to what it would be if they weren't making any payments or if they were on pay. Yeah, I had questions about refinancing and during the whole COVID pandemic, I didn't know if I should be taking advantage of, you know, the low interest rates of, you know, whatever. Um, And a lot of my dental dentist friends didn't really have an answer for me on whether I should refinance or whether I should go for payee or just to kind of delay all these things because of COVID. But um, it seems like regardless, payee seems to be, or or an income-based repayment plan is probably the best option for most people. I want to go back to the public service loan forgiveness. So PSLF, uh, there are all these horror stories of being denied uh, the forgiveness. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned that, you know, maybe it's because these loans are before 2010, before they were actually direct federal student loans. Can you talk a little bit about the common reasons you have seen on why people have failed to get the PSLF? Yeah. Well, if you think about it, it's kind of a newer program. So it started in 2007. And at the time, you didn't have pay or repay. You just had IBR. Mm -hmm. And only 20% of the loans issued up until 2010 were direct federal student loans. So the first people that applied for PSLF in 2017, 2018, they had to, first of all, and, and again, 2007, when all this started, this is like, I mean, Google and YouTube were, were just in their infancy. Like people weren't using YouTube at all. I remember like the first video I sent on YouTube was in 2009 because I, we had like our first baby then yeah. and I couldn't, the file was too big to send to my parents. So I was like, <laughs> well, what's this YouTube thing? So I took, you know, I, I, I like filmed the video, uploaded it to YouTube and then yeah. shared the link with my parents. And that was the, that was 2009. That's how new it was. So in any case, information was not readily available to people that early on. So the first people who applied for this round, they had to be one of the 20% who had direct federal loans before 2010. They had to have known about income-driven repayment, which was kind of a newer thing at the time. And they had to know about filling out this employment certification form. So in other words, it was really, really, really hard to do. Mm. That combined with the fact that anytime you offer loan forgiveness, you get people applying who have no business applying. So I think, I forget what the stat is, but I'm just going to say it's a third of the people who applied had absolutely no business applying anyway. So they all got rejected. 
Then you had a bunch that didn't have all direct federal loans. So those people got rejected. And then you had people who weren't on an income-driven plan for the full 10 years, and those people got rejected. Mm-hmm. And at the end of the day, there was only you know 1% of people that had done it right, only because the information was not readily available. So, But the way to check to make sure that you're on the right track is what we always recommend is once people start in residency, after about two months of payments, even if they're the zero payments, the zero payments count, send in what's called this employment, certifica- employment certification form. ECF. And if you send in that employment certification form, what happens is studentaid.gov will match up your payment history with the employment history that your employer has signed up on, signed off on. And if whatever, if two payments match after the two months of zero payments, and you should see on your loans, two months of credit toward PSLF, you're checking all the boxes and you're good to go. So, so we think that the PSLF acceptance rate is going to really explode because there's over a million people now who have at least one month of PSLF credit on their loans already. So what we, what we always recommend is fill that out after a few months of payments. And then every year, typically when people recertify their income on the income driven plan, send in the employment certification form again, so that each year they're getting those years of those months of credit tacked onto their loan so they can track it and manage it. I can see some difficulty or challenge for oral surgeons. I think for other healthcare professionals, like more traditional medical specialties, such as, you know, orthopedics, internal medicine, they tend to work in a hospital. They get, they tend to find full-time jobs in a hospital. For oral surgeons, it's a little bit more complicated. It seems like most oral surgeons end up going to private practice because they do make the most money there. And if they did want to go to a PSLF option now so that they have accumulated four years of PSLF months, I guess years during residency. Now they need six more. But for an oral surgeon to be full-time employed for six years at a hospital, it has to be in the academic setting. I don't Mm -hmm. see like a hospital job that oral surgeons can just work at full-time. And so I I wonder if oral surgeons don't mind that because they make decent income in prior practice. And so not getting the loan forgiven maybe doesn't matter to them as much. There's there's certainly the trade-off. There's the there's is a financial equation that can if someone is choosing if someone could go either path or they have the PSLF path open to them but they're not sure you know because they're they're not probably not going to be making as much as they would as you know if they were in private practice which is the case for most dental professions mm-hmm. um, you know like associating being a working in private practice and owning a practice is much more lucrative financially than than becoming an associate. And same thing with just normal MDs, you know, working in a hospital, typically they don't get paid what they would if they were in private practice. So there is like a mathematical equation. And if uh, an oral surgeon has the opportunity to choose between those two, then basically they'd have to say, okay, if I wanted to be debt-free in six years, how much would I have to pay to like pay off my loans in full in six years? Or how much is that PSLF benefit you know, how much am I projected to pay over the next six years? If I were to work in a PSLF qualifying job, you take that difference. And like, that's the average salary take home pay that they'd have to make in order to make it worth it. Mm. Um, but then again, you know, also you don't have to worry about your debt, you know, after 10 years of total time working. So, you know, but mainly with, with dentists and any dental specialists, including oral surgery, oftentimes private practice is you know, the way to go, you know, there's, that's the only option. So, and we've heard of other dentists who they, they work for a nonprofit to try to get PSLF, but that kind of work in it for general dentists is like really, really grueling stuff. Mm-hmm. And most of them don't last the full 10 years doing that. So I guess it just, again, the student loan plan can be designed around the career path that, mm-hmm. that you want. And so once understanding what the options are, then it's easy to make a decision. That's why we offer consults because even though oral surgery is a, is a very specific niche within dentistry, there's st- everyone has their own unique circumstances. Some people are married. Some people are married to someone who has student debt. Some people have kids. Some people, you know, they're, they, they're not sure what career path they want to do. And that's why the, the consults that we do are so important because we can tailor the plan and show them the, the numbers based upon their personal projections rather than, you know, a more general feeling of it. Well, I think you'll get a lot of listeners contacting you for help because uh, there's been a couple of times I got, I got completely lost during this conversation. And so, <laughs> you know, Rob, you're seeing me write all this stuff as we're going along. Um, but I did prepare for this episode. But uh, 
Well, it's, it's a little technical. I mean, it's not a little technical. It's a lot technical and there's a lot of numbers. And the thing about student loan rules is that they are so different than any other, any other kind of debt. If we were talking about debt in general, you know, should I pay off my mortgage? Should I pay off my car? Should I pay off my credit card debt or invest? These, these are more widely talked about and there's more traditional rules of engagement with this kind of debt. Mm-hmm. Student debt, because the rules are so different and then also combined with the fact that the, the different options, they're different enough to make a difference, but they're so similar that they start to kind of run together. <laughs> huh. So so you're not, certainly not alone. Um, that's why we always tell people, you know, definitely check out our blog posts. We have, you know, the one that you obviously read and, and got in touch with us. And if anyone has any questions, you know, we do the consults. It takes an hour. We go through their specific situation. And then also we do include six months of email support. So even after the call is over, you have direct email contact with the consultant, one of the four of us. And, um, and we can continue to help you as those decisions are being made. You know, Rob, I feel like I'm getting a free consult from you right now. Uh, <laughs> <I> mean, <laughs> Happy to I, help. I'm very fortunate for this. Uh, I guess this is what the benefit you get from running a podcast. You know, so Rob, let's say I come to you and, you know, I want to make payments towards my debt. Let's say I'm on payee and yeah, sure, I can make $0 payments during my intern year or what have you, you know, but I also have this desire to lease that BMW uh, three series. And I ask you, Hey, should I lease that car, pay $400, $500 a month to that? I don't need to pay towards my payee right now. Or is it just better to just pay towards the payee? What's more beneficial, I guess, long-term? Well, everyone can make their own their own decisions, but I will say that the, the number one predictor of wealth is not how much someone makes. It's actually how much they have left over at the end of the month. So the, the, and that's the savings rate. So if you take your income and you figure out how much you can save on a monthly basis, you know, that's why like literally janitors can be millionaires. And I've actually personally seen that. And, but you can have doctors and dentists who are like broke with $50,000 of credit card debt, which I've seen. Um, so the, the only difference between the two is the, is the savings rate. So for example, you know, it's kind of the shorthand that I use is, is, Every thousand dollars a month that someone can save, in it's a two hundred, five hundred, a thousand. So, a thousand dollars a month invested for ten years becomes two hundred thousand. Over twenty years, it's five hundred thousand, and over thirty years, it's a million bucks. So, in thirty years, and that's with like a, around a seven percent projected annualized investment return. So, if if you want to have five million dollars in the future, you have to save five thousand dollars a month. Now with oral surgeons, obviously it's saving, you know, $200 a month while in residency. And then (laughs) when you're making your oral surgery salary, it's saving $10,000 a month or $8,000 a month to make up for it. Mm -hmm. But, but nonetheless, doing what you can and saving what you can today is only going to benefit the future. Um, You know, and, and what happens is uh, at some point, look, you're, you're, Oral surgeons, like you're paying your dues, it's a long, grueling road, and you should feel comfortable taking some of the money that you're making on a residency salary and enjoying it, decompressing, doing whatever you need to do, as long as it's productive. But then you don't want to go overboard and sabotage your finances because you think you're going to get win the lotto. Mm-hmm. The, the the sooner someone sets up solid financial habits, especially in residency, that is actually a greater predictor of where they're end up, end up in terms of their future net worth, ability to retire, financial freedom, financial independence. Um, so all that to say that when we do have consults and when we do advise people to keep their payments low, their student loan payments low, what we mean is keep your payments low so that you can save more and invest more for the future. No. And I, I've been trying to do that a lot. I I learned about, I took the time during COVID to learn more in depth about investing. And I, I was very fortunate during this time to do well on my investments now I've had many dental students and you know residents during uh, who are going through med school. They have asked me this question. You know, I have some money left over from my loans each month because I, you know, my my apartment payment was low enough, or I don't have that many expenses. Should I keep it and use it for investing? Should I use it for you know enjoying myself, you know, decompressing, or should I give it all back to student loan? And I promised myself during dental school. That was what I would do. And it was extremely hard. You know, sometimes I'm like, you know, I think I need a new camera. Oh, you know, my laptop <laughs> is running a little slow. Oh, the battery's kind of messed up. I'm going to buy a new one. And what are your recommendations to those students? 
Well, less debt is better, um, but it kind of depends. If you know you're going to pay back your loans in full no matter what, then the lower you can keep your balance, that just means the less you have to pay back in the future. But someone who's going for PSLF, in all honesty, mathematically, it doesn't matter how much they take out. They could take out a million dollars of student debt. If they're on the PSLF track, their payments are only going to be based upon their income and the rest is going to get forgiven. So, but I think there's a lot to be said for not living your life with emotional conflict or dissonance. And if, if it doesn't make you feel good, then you shouldn't, then you should pay it back. Or if it, if you are going to use it for a productive use and you feel okay with that, Mm. then, you know, it's probably okay. You know, this is the student loan rules are set up that you can take out as much as you want and college. And, and another way to put it is colleges can keep increasing their tuition because backed by the government, there's easier ways to make payments with income driven repayment and loan forgiveness. And so, Hey, why don't we just keep raising our tuition? That could also be said on the lifestyle side of taking out student debt too. Yeah. It's the infinite wallet of government that I've been living off of for the past uh, <laughs> now five years. Well, don't worry. They'll get you back with your taxes once you get your full salary. This has been a very depressing episode. <laughs> oh, well, man. I, I think, though, Marcus, seriously, though, you're going to be totally fine financially. And it is hard to see what life is going to look like in 20 years from you, for mm-hmm. you since you're in it. But I can tell you just by talking with you that financially and just in terms of your career satisfaction and the kind of person you are, that you are going to be in great shape. But that's very encouraging. And uh, this all applies to all my uh, listeners as well. Yeah, thanks, Rob. One last thing before we close and kind of finish this episode is this is different than before. And what I mean by that is we're in COVID uh, or we have been and hopefully we're coming to the end of it. There have been many students who have been taking out extra loans because of the 0% interest rate right now. What do you think about that? Well, the interest freeze and payment freeze is going to be over soon. So at the time we're recording this, the, the current end date is January 31st. Now, when the Biden administration takes office, they could extend it either through congressional action now that they have a, a majority, or they could do it through executive order. We think most likely that Congress or President-elect Biden will end up extending it at least through, till we get through enough where people, enough people can get vaccinated. We can start opening the economy back up without some of the restrictions. Um, to keep the case cases down as best as we can. That being said, is that once that freeze is over, and it could only be another three to four months, it could be in September, but you know, interest is going to turn back on. So now that being said, too, interest rates are at historic lows, or at or near historic lows, and and federal student loan interest rates are also at or near historic lows. Mm. So especially for grad plus loans. So I wouldn't do it. I wouldn't do it just because it's it's almost like buying a car because they're offering you 0% interest. <laughs> um, people tend to look at the payments and when you're dealing with big numbers, you kind of get people naturally, they kind of dismiss it. So for example, let's just say someone has the opportunity to buy a, a $30,000 car or a $40,000 car. When you're looking at a car, you think that's not that big of a difference. It's an extra hundred bucks a month for the payments, no big deal. But if you remove that $10,000 difference from the context of the car and ask yourself, what would I do if I had an extra $10,000 in my pocket. Would I buy that extra car or would I take that, use that to take like five nice vacations mm. or, um, or give to charity or um, pay off credit card debt or, you know, mm. what's going to make you feel the best. You kind of have to, so with student debt, I kind of have to remove the large numbers uh, that are, I've already been um, like the large numbers that have already been amassed in terms of student debt and ask yourself, is it worth it for me to take out this extra $10,000 or not? Mm. Or would I be better suited since I'm going to have to pay it back to just keep my expenses low and not worry about it? Yeah, I've had some colleagues during COVID who when it got very excited about the 0% interest rate and they took out more student loans and they invested it and they lost thousands of dollars. And, you know, and that when the interest rate freeze is done, they're going to accrue interest on that lost thousands of dollars. And so um, I, I think... It, it, it's a bad idea to just take out money for the sake of it. Right. And, and not to mention that, I mean, there's, these are student loans. So technically this money is not supposed to be used for those kinds of purposes. <laughs> so, but, but people are doing it. I don't think they're going to enforce anything like that. I'm certainly not the student loan police by any stretch, but there is the tendency to, to use the money to do other things that wouldn't be inclusive in why taking out the debt. Hmm. But I mean, with investing too, I mean, the market's been on an incredible run despite the dip in March. I mean, we're, we, 
I, I, look, I've been investing for over 20 years. I've invested through three giant recessions. And I can tell you that there are times when it looks really easy, but it always, it always makes people, it always makes people kind of realize how much time they're putting into it. It's kind of like the real estate bubble in 2008, where it, 2007, it was easy to make money. And if it's easy for everybody, that means it's something's going to correct. Because in any case, I think people who are investing now on their own, I think it's okay to take a little bit. This is sort of like a, a side note, but anyone who's investing on their own right now, this has been an unprecedentedly hot market. Mm -hmm. And just because someone is having an investment success over the last year or two or three years or two weeks is not predictive of what that could look like over the long run. If they're So in other words, people who are picking individual stocks, they should use an amount that they feel comfortable with mm -hmm. um, losing. Uh, cause that, that can, that certainly can happen. And I've, I've seen that. I've personally gone through that when I first started investing, I was like, <laughs> I'm a genius. I'm investing in the tech bubble. I'm like, oh my gosh, I've just sold something that went up 25% that something went up 35% and these things are just going crazy. And then, and then I got, I got absolutely nailed and lost like everything I'd ever built up. And then even some of the principal I started with, um, fortunately it wasn't an amount that affected me, but, um, it was a lesson to be learned for sure. You know, there's a quote that uh, I think Confucius says that uh, every man has two lives and you live the second one when you realize you have one. And I think this applies to investing. <laughs> I think every investor has two, I guess, lives of investing is when, and, and the second one begins when you actually lose a ton of money. And I've definitely gone through that myself early in my investing career. And so I, I look at investing now with a more careful and uh, mature lens. You know, Rob, thank you for your time. This was uh, really fun. I have a lot more to study up on. And I'm sure my listeners really appreciate uh, having you on as well. Just to uh, kind of direct people to you, where can people find you? Do you have an Instagram you want to uh, talk about, Twitter, company, website? Yeah, the best place to go is studentloanplanner.com. And through there, we have all sorts of calculators. We have blog posts specific to oral surgeons. We have, you know, refinancing for people who know they're going to refinance. You can even take out for people who don't qualify for federal loans. You can take out private student loans through the site too. But the most important thing is that we have plenty of free resources available for people who are looking to figure out how to best pay back their loans um, and plotting the course of what repayment could look like as an oral surgeon. And then also for people who want to take it to the next level, we offer um, the one-on-one, -on -one, one-hour consultations where we can really deep dive into your situation and figure that out. So, but studentloanplanner.com, it has, it'll have everything you need there. And are people able to specifically request you for those consultations? Yeah, they can. So we, we have uh, right now at the moment, four consultants. So Travis, who's the founder, mm. Megan, Lauren, and me, and um, I do consults on Tuesdays and then trap and then everyone else is kind of spread out throughout the week. So, um, but any one of us, each of us have done well over 500 consults and I think it's over 600 consults per person now. Mm. Um, and so any one of us will be able to help you. And we, okay. we all, by the way, we all have CFPs or CFAs or CSLPs, the certified student loan planner designation um, or a certified financial planner or a chartered financial analyst or a combination of those. So we're not just some people who don't have any experience in financial and finances. Uh, we know what we're doing, we're professionals it's a requirement to be to work as a consultant is to have an advanced designation in finance. No, and I think that's great because I think a really good advice I got early in my uh, investing and also personal finance is that you should find uh, not all consultants, not all advisors are treated equally. Some, you guys might not all have the same designations, but that doesn't mean you have experience working with lawyers or doctors or dentists. Uh, and so I think, you know, Rob, you have a very extensive history with that in your group as well. And so, you know, I'll put your uh, company website on my um, show description. Last fun little question I do for everyone. I am not sure if you've ever been to, into the operating room. Have you? Uh, I had, I think, one or two procedures, but I've never been there as an observer, I guess. Okay. Well, if you were uh, an observer or a surgeon in the operating room, what uh, OR song would you have on? Oh, that's a good question. This reminds me of the movie Doctor Strange, I guess, right? Where he's like performing <laughs> surgery and guessing the, the song title and naming the years. You know, it's hard to say. I, I would either do something really relaxing, maybe some like jazz trio music, or maybe some, um, I'm a big acapella nerd. So I like acapella music. 
So I might have some pentatonics playing or something like that. <laughs> you know, I wonder if you would get kicked out of the OR if you played acapella. <laughs> you know, I'm a jazz guy myself. And I I remember one time I was uh, visiting a program and I they asked me what song I want to play. And I turned on jazz music and immediately it was just, nope, change the song. We're putting on something else. And uh, my previous guest or on a different episode, um, the surgeon said that his favorite OR song is uh, Yodeling. He likes hmm. yodeling music. And so everyone has their different tastes. Yeah, I, I love pretty much all music. And so I'll listen to pretty much everything. I think probably heavy metal is probably too much for the operating room. <laughs> <laughs> but other than that, I think anything else would, would be suitable. Yeah, well, Rob, well, thanks for your time. Um, this was a great episode and you know we'll talk again soon. Yeah, thanks, Marcus. Thanks for having me. Happy to help. Thank you.